Hey, let's pray and we'll get at it. Love and God, we thank you uh, that we can gather your family and just chat and have fun. Uh, we gather together to make much of you. Um, we gather together to strengthen and encourage each other, and we gather together just to simply enjoy each other's presence and company, uh, that we would be strengthened and fortified, that we would move out into the world knowing that we aren't alone. Our prayer this morning as we look at this topic is that as we go through it, that it wouldn't just be the, um, the simplicity of my words, but your Holy Spirit would be at work in people's lives to warm our hearts with a deep affection for you, to turn us from rebels into worshippers. And that's our prayer here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Bruce Shelley... Uh, historian, he begins his book on, it's called the Church History in Plain Language, and he starts an opening quote to this book is, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. It's an arresting opening line. It's, it's one of one of the few things uh, that I actually remember from my church history class, I failed it, I had to do it twice, uh, it's okay. What, what is perhaps even more extraordinary though, is that, or more arresting perhaps, is that the Christian church, its founding figures, the millions of believers from the past two millennia have called this humiliation, this death of their God, their gospel. Their good news. This is their great message of hope. And so, as we've mentioned before here, uh, the cross, uh, this instrument of barbaric torture, uh, became a symbol of hope. And, and it began to adorn graves. And it spoke hope, saying, Death does not have the last word. We put it on t shirts, we put it on jewelry. What explains such a persisting phenomenon that this wicked historic event would be redefined as hope, hope of the world, other than these original uh, receivers of it, these original planters of the church, the apostles, the disciples, seeing it as the fulfillment of every single promise of God in Scripture to save humanity from death, to save humanity from the, the power and the punishment of sin. What can explain it other than it being the confirmation of the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God, his love, his justice, through which he saves sinful people from destruction? And that's something that the risen Lord Jesus at the end of Luke's gospel uh, affirms. He's having a chat with some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, seven mile journey. I would have loved to have been in that conversation. But he says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all of these things and then enter into his glory. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, uh, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. 
And then again, it's something that Paul affirms at the end of his letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which I received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, like nothing else in the universe matters. That Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to scripture. Here, both Jesus and Paul appoint the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus as the most important event in all of history. And the verification of the truthfulness of all of scripture And along with that, the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God to be true to his word, to be true to the character and the word that is contained in all of this scripture, in all of this Old Testament. Not only that, Paul explains why it's good news. Why this three-day sequence of events not only stands as testimony to God's faithfulness, but as the basis for enduring hope with a simple little three-letter word, for Christ died for our sins. A word that serves to give cause and reason that Jesus died because of our sins, on behalf of our sins. So it was our sin, but it's Jesus who dies on our behalf. The good news, the gospel of the Christian faith is that Jesus, the Son of God, receives the penalty, the punishment of our sin in our place. He undergoes the experience, if you like, of, of decreation. Sin is decreational. It, it, it disorders, it distracts. It, 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 we, we looked at it, how it disorders all loves, disorders all relationships, causes all kinds of chaos. Jesus undergoes that so that we might, oh my goodness gracious me, there it is, deconstructing the stage, that we might undergo a recreation of our hearts. You see, sin is powerfully decreational. It works against the creational word of God. It stands against his good character. And only a creational God can reverse sin and recreate people's hearts, recreate this world. But it must be done in a manner that upholds the goodness and the truth of all of his word, of all of his character. We're in a series where we were looking at our statements of faith and we arrived at the statement of faith that deals with how people are saved from, from sin, its power and its penalty uh, through the perfect life of Jesus and his substitutionary atoning death and, and how that, how that sin and, and the power and the, the, the penalty of it is replaced by the power and the presence of Jesus through the resurrection and through his ongoing, unchanging priesthood. And it reads like this, the salvation of men and women from the penial consequences and the power of sin through the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, his substitutionary and atoning death, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his unchanging priesthood. Now, just in case... You are not from the penial colony of Tasmania. The word penial means punishment. 
Tasmania was a place of punishment, so it gets called a penal colony. That's what we send. We send bad people, criminals, and all kinds of things to uh, Tasmania. Jack jumpers, they're down there as well. Jesus saves us from our own Tasmania, if you like. Sorry, Tasmanians. I should point out, though, that a lot more than penal substitutionary atonement for sin took place on the cross. We do a big disservice to the cross if that's all we have to say about what's going on there. On the cross, Jesus uh, triumphs over evil. You know, and Paul writes about that in Colossians. On the cross, Jesus also offers an inspiring example uh, to others who are suffering unjustly. That's Peter's writing about that in his letter. On the cross comes an end to the old life of sin, of being enslaved to this old life of sin and, and the new creation, the recreation of new life so that we can say we, we, we are new people. We are not as we were. And Paul writes about that in Romans 6. There's probably other facets, no doubt, that I've overlooked. But however, today we're all about our statement of faith and, and just focusing in on that. In our reading today, we heard from the prophet Isaiah, a prophet of God who spoke some seven, eight hundred years before uh, Jesus turned up. And he spoke into his present day situation of life, the exile and the punishment of Israel for their sin. And how can the gracious promise of God to forgive a guilty people come true uh, when they have no means of addressing sin? How can people who deserve the wrath of God, how can God love them? Like They're in exile. There is no more temple. There is no more Jerusalem. There's no more systems. It's all gone. It's all been flattened. They are just there with nothing. How is this going to come about? How will this happen? Well, painting a picture of that, Isaiah simultaneously spoke forward to a life to come of a, of a servant. He begins to paint this picture of this servant who is crushed and killed on behalf of the wicked, whose actions are greater, even greater than that of the high priest back in Jerusalem, back at the temple on the Day of Atonement, who, whose actions would come in and cleanse the nation of Israel. He would come in there, he would, he would grab a couple of goats, one would be expiated, would go out of the city, and he would remove the sin of the people away. The other one's uh, slain and, and blood sprinkled, and that atones for the sin of the people. But greater than that is this servant, because he uh, is cleansed the nation, for, will cleanse many nations of sin. So not just Israel. This, this servant's going to be global. And he will make all nations, all people fit for the presence of God. Bearing others' sins on himself. Who cleanses others by becoming repulsive. Who as he bears their iniquity and their punishment... As he moves into judgment and chaos, he brings peace to others and his wounds are afflicted on him. Healing comes to others and as he is killed, sin is overcome so that life, the light, life will come to others. If the book of Isaiah can be given a title, it's that God saves sinners, like really messed up bad ones. No temples, no systems, none of that stuff. And Isaiah's description of the suffering servant, we get a typological picture, like laying down a type. The Old Testament, all of these things are pointing forward 
to greater things to come in a person. All these systems, all these temples, they're pointing forward. They're not full. It's a picture that Jesus fills up. It's as though Isaiah is watching this three-day-long sequence of events in which Jesus is arrested and tried and, and beaten and crushed and crucified and buried and then raised to life. Uh, J.A. Oswell, he has written a commentary on Isaiah, a three-part commentary. You kind of need a small forklift to carry this thing around. But he points out that we learn something these 700, 800 years before Jesus, that God's greatest power is not exercised in the destruction of the wicked, but in his taking all the wickedness of the earth onto himself and giving back love, responding with love. In Isaiah, we get a great picture of the grace of substitutional atonement that saves people from the penal consequences of their sin, and it's filled up in Jesus. So that Paul, take, taking that promise, writes, uh, thinking through all that stuff, writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be our sin bearer, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like there's a great exchange going on here, a switching of places positionally before God with Jesus and us. And then Peter drives it home even further by stating that Jesus bore our sins in, in his body on the tree, on the cross. When we come toward the end of our service today, we, we will pause. We're going to pause and we're going to reflect on, this, on these things. And then we're going to share this, this meal that you see here that Jesus himself went and redefined just prior to this great work of atonement that we're talking about, this great work of atonement for our sin, the cross, the tree where he dealt with sin, this great exchange. And you can read about this meal, how Jesus redefines it, uh, in all four of the Gospels. At this particular meal, though, Jesus broke with 1,500 years of tradition and ritual that God had placed into this meal and laid into Israel's history, laid into Israel's story, a picture of substitutional atonement, a perfect lamb sacrificed, its blood used to shelter under, so that death and judgment would pass over those who trusted in that substitutional promise from God. Jesus now lets his disciples know that in him, the full and ultimate meaning of this meal is filled up. And just as the firstborn sons of Israel were spared from God's judgment in Egypt on account of the lamb, the slain lamb, in their place. This is why we have so many songs. We sing these songs about slain lambs. I often wonder what people who have nothing to do with church come into a building and we're singing about slain lambs. They haven't read the Old Testament. They're like, oh my goodness, what are these people? This slain lamb in their place says that God's new covenant community of people will be spared from his judgment through this substitutionary death of Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 3.25. This, 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 this is for all people of all time, of all history that is now swept up in this event. From the fall of humanity in a perfect garden all the way up to the obedience of Jesus in a dark and lonely garden. 
Scripture has been painting the picture of how God will save sinful people from death while remaining faithful to his promise to punish sin. And it's all going to be done in a way that leads to life, that actually doesn't crush us. How is that possible? Well, for God to do anything else would be to compromise his own character. For God to go back on his word, that humanity, having transgressed, having plunged itself into sin, should not die, would actually make God untrustworthy. He would become a God who said stuff and then he changes it because it has become difficult, because it's become awkward. Sin must be punished because God said it would be. And God is not like us that he should change his mind when things get difficult. However, as Athanasius points out, and you're like, these names, these words, who on earth is Athanasius? He's the other person I remember from church history. Uh, He's a groovy little 4th century monk, and he is small. They called him the Black Gnome because he was so short. He's from Africa and that sort of thing. But, But he observed that it is equally monstrous that people who share the image of God should perish and turn back again into destruction through corruption. It is unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit fashioned on them participated by them from the devil and yet true as that is it is just unthinkable just as unthinkable that god the father of truth should go back on his word regarding death in order to ensure our continued existence he could not falsify himself what then is god to do this is athanasius thinking writing thinking you know just as an an aside God didn't have to save us from sin. didn't have to save anyone. He certainly didn't spare the fallen angels. Peter writes about that in 2 Peter. They are irreversibly consigned to judgment. But as Athanasius points out, they are not the image bearers. One of the amazing things about God in the scripture is the fact that God is never frustrated by human sin, never gives up on his plans for our good or his creation. When we're frustrated with some endeavor, we, we give up, we try something new, throw all the toys out of the cot, but not so with God. When humanity fell into sin in Genesis 3, God act, acted in judgment, but he also continued to engage with rebellious humanity for their salvation, for their good. And the question is, how can God save sinful people from death while remaining faithful to the promise to punish them? To put them to death. Well, the incarnation, we've looked at it. We looked at this last week. It is the incredible answer. God becomes one of us, identifying fully with us in every respect of humanity, apart from sinful nature and participation in sin. Now, what we'll really do our finite little minds in is that this decision was made before sin entered the world. As Paul points out in Ephesians 1.4 and Peter in 1 Peter and and John in, in Revelation, the point is that God's decision to save us from sin is an unforced and totally free act of love that lives in tension with the wrath of God that will be provoked by sin. So before creation... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, being one God, decided in unity of purpose and uh, inseparable mutual operation to save people from sin. 
whatever you think of the Trinity or whenever you think of the Trinity uh, uh, and the roles that each of these three uh, persons of the Trinity play, you should always think of them with a unity of purpose and an inseparable mutual operation. So the Father just declares that he would plan and direct salvation. And the Son just declares that he would accomplish and provide salvation. And the Holy Spirit just declares that he would apply and maintain salvation. In a wondrous moment, God willed in unity and equality that he would be both condemner of sin and conqueror of sin himself personally he would personally pronounce the judgment of sin and he would personally provide the justice and the salvation for sin so there is no hint of cosmic child abuse as some people who like to swim around in the shallow end of the theological pool might suggest there is no hint of an angry malevolent god just throwing all the toys out of the cot because things have got too hard they didn't go the way he wanted them to go as if that's true What we have here is the love and the justice towards sin, mercy, and a meaningfully satisfying judgment. So Paul writes, at just the right time, Jesus steps into the pages of human history and identifies with humanity across all lines with one profound difference. In Jesus, we see no sin. Because in Jesus, we see... uh, Humanity as it was intended to be. Humanity free from corruption, brought in by the fall. Humanity's intended design lived out perfectly in the life of Jesus. In Jesus, we see perfect love, trust, and obedience for God. In Jesus, we see perfect love and respect for all people. In Jesus, we witness humanity's rule over creation is finally fulfilled. In Jesus, we see that God's design, we see there what God's design For full humanity looks like when we look at Jesus, we are seeing what people should have been, should have acted like, should have been like. And as we do that, we are confronted with our sin. We see how far off the mark we are. We get a very clear picture of our sinfulness. It is this Jesus, this perfect Jesus, who is humiliated. It is this Jesus who is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. It is this Jesus who on a cross bears the full punishment for sin, turning aside the wrath and the fury of God towards sin, toward himself. That's the conclusion of 1 John 2. And Paul in Romans 3.25 and the writer of Hebrews. The Lord Jesus did not come into the world to meet with friends. He came to die for sinners. He came to die for his enemies, people who despise him, people who mock him, people who are indifferent to him. He came to people, as Paul writes in the beginning of Romans, to people who traded the love of God and trusted his moral character for the love of stuff and were confident in their own image, in their own self-righteousness and had no need to be needful. This is who he came to identify with. This is who he came to die for. But Jesus does not simply check himself in at the cross as our substitute. It is not merely on the cross where Jesus identifies with us. 
Jesus, as we've said, is humanity's perfect representative. Jesus identifies with humanity across all lines. So we've got to look at his whole life. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those and free those who uh, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus in his humanity, Jesus, God in the flesh, experienced life as we do, tempted by sin, but, but listen, tempted more than you or I have ever been tempted because we give in to sin so that, that the pressure is off. The intensity is off. But Jesus never gives an inch. He is the only person who knows fully and truly what it is to endure temptation through, but also know what it is to be perfectly human. So he represents humanity in their place. Under God's judgment, he can put himself forward for us. And because Jesus is not merely human, he is God in the flesh, Jesus' death is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to atone the sins of the world. It's not like at any level it was insufficient or ineffective. That's why anyone, whether you describe yourself as the elect or or, or some other term, are saved from the penal consequences and the power of sin through the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ and his substitutionary and atoning death. The scriptures magnify God's love for us by its refusal to diminish our plight as sinners deserving of God's wrath. And it's by, and by its uncompromising portrayal of the cross as the place where Christ bore the punishment in our place for his people. Isaiah, Romans, Galatians, Peter, 1 John. We go around blunting the sharp edges of the cross. We dull the glittering diamond of God's love for us. On the cross, the Son of God is crushed so we can be liberated Jesus is forsaken so we can be brought in. Endures wrath so we can know joy. Judgment so we can know forgiveness. Condemnation so we can know justification. Chaos so we can know peace. As Paul writes in Romans, at the cross, God demonstrates his own love for us, his unique love for us in this, that he died for sinners. Godless, rebellious, helpless people like you and I. Cross is where both justice and the love of God are seen in a way that is faithful to his word and his moral character. 
Here is why his humiliation becomes his glory. God triumphs over the decreation of sin, while at the same time becoming the means for the recreation of humanity, our hearts, and indeed, one day, the entire cosmos. God's plan to deal with sin does not end at the cross. We're all very familiar with the resurrection. We've covered it uh, multiple times, so we're not going to back over it a lot today. That on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. It is in this announcement that while Jesus died on our behalf, death has no hold on him. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus. God punishes our sin in Jesus, but he vindicates Jesus of any wrongdoing. So he's raised to life declared to be righteous and worthy of having eternal life, of being eternal life. Something that he now um, oversees at the right hand of the Father, something that he is um, giving to those who would come in faith to him. From there, from there, he's acting on our behalf. This is the ascension. This is the ongoing priesthood. Jesus doesn't just ascend into heaven and do nothing. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, acting, participating, interceding on our behalf. But to, to anyone who would call on his name and take shelter under the substitutional work of the cross, For those people, Jesus is now offering the same quality of eternal life that he has. We get that picture on repeat throughout John's gospel. But Jesus is doing more than offering a quality of life. Like just saying, here it is. Here's this quality of life that I've earned for you. Go now and work very hard at it. Go now and be very diligent at it. No, Jesus is still very intimately involved with us. He's still identifying with us as he oversees our faith. He hasn't left us alone in this story. Jesus, who identified with us and acted as our substitute, now identifies with us and acts as our priest, as our person of comfort, as our person of sympathy. As why the writer of Hebrews has pointed out that Jesus is now a faithful high priest who sympathizes with us. As we work out our faith, as we go about uh, learning and living through what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I think it was Kent Hughes, I heard this in a sermon, I can't remember if it was Kent Hughes or someone else. Where they speak about the musical phenomenon called sympathetic resonance. That if you have uh, two pianos, two of the same pianos in a room and you play a note on one, the other piano will, will resonate a sympathetic note. Like you play a C here, and in this piano it resonates the C. Jesus, who now sits in heaven in his human body, uh, like ours, continues to resonate with humanity. When we encounter trials and hardships, just like that piano, Jesus is able to sympathetically resonate. He doesn't just merely know what it's like or or, or imagine what it's like, pain. Our pain resonates in the heart of Jesus. He doesn't imagine it. He doesn't imagine what you're going through. He feels it. He remembers it. The writer is telling us 
with the, with the specific references to our faith, if you like, that the trials, the hardships that we experience that challenge our faith, that, that they did come and ask us to let go of our faith. Jesus went through it all, and never once did he give in to temptation. Never once did he fail to love God, trust his word and his character and his goodness. Jesus felt the temptation, uh, these fears, these trials, with a far greater ferocity and intensity than we do. And because, because he outlasted it, because he never gave into it, we can approach him knowing that he's a faithful high priest knowing that he's been where we've been, but he is the answer. He is the solution. He understands when your heart fails. He understands when you just want to give up. Think about that. You are never unseen. You are never unheard. You are never not understood. This is the picture. This is the description. This is the gospel of what our God is, of what he's like. Why would you turn to anyone else? The writer of Hebrews says that this throne, this throne of God where Jesus sits is not draped in power and awe and majesty, but rather is draped in grace. So we approach a God of grace, a priest of grace. The writer of Hebrews says that as we do that, in 4.16, that we are to speak openly with boldness and frankness. This is not disrespect. This is simply relational confidence. And this morning, as we, as we think about all of this, as we, as we think about all that Jesus has done for us, this, this, this substitutionary saving of our souls and this ongoing eternal priesthood where he sits and intercedes on our behalf we we approach this table and that's what this table is about this table is about acknowledging what jesus has done on our behalf for our sins to give us a new quality of life but not merely just as an event but something that he oversees something that he continues to walk with us, is that we can come to him in our weaknesses, that we can seek him out, and we know that he is faithfully there for us. And in this we know that God is good, we know that he is faithful, and we know that he is true, and, and that is what our gospel stands on, that is why it is hope, and that is why the humiliation of our God is our greatest praise and joy. I'm going to pray, and then the band is just going to come up and sing a song, and as they do, as we do, just come forward and just, for those who have actually, this table is for those who have taken shelter under the provision of Jesus. It's not, not for you if you haven't done that, but maybe, maybe today you do. Come forward. And take the cup, and the cup represents the blood, the, the, the atoning blood, and the bread represents Jesus' body, his physical body. You, you, you've got these tangible symbols of substitutionary atonement in your hand to go, God has done this for me that I might know him and experience life in the full and just sit and give thanks, confession, joy,
and then we're going to wrap things up. Loving God, we thank you that you are not a God who leaves us in our mess or demands that we fix our mess as if we could. You're a God who has willed to be both our condemner and our conqueror. It's too, it's too amazing to think up. And in the cross, we see the faithfulness to your promise, the faithfulness to your character. We see justice being done and we see your love towards us that, that you would bear our sins, that you would be destroyed, decreated, that we might be recreated, that we might be given life, something that we can live into, but, not, but something that, that you maintain us in, that you, you journey with us in. This morning, as we come and we take these elements, would you warm our hearts with affection for you as we once again just lay our, our sin, our brokenness before you with a confidence, knowing that, that, you, that you care for us, that you would journey with us through that, that you would enable us to, 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 to seek to keep pursuing our faith and not be crushed by our failures. What grace.